Matthew chapter 2, we're going to look at that, and uh, perhaps it goes without saying, I've already said it once, but Merry Christmas. Uh, what a great time to be together this Christmas Eve, and we look forward to being together uh, this evening at 4 p.m. Uh, to just one more time seize the opportunity to think about Christ. So this morning, what an exciting time. Here we are at Christmas Eve, and not only just this morning, but it has been an exciting and I think enjoyable journey uh, over the last three weeks. We have, over the years, really carved out this time to really look at Christ, to look at the Scripture that have, uh, as we looked at last year, pointed to this moment, as Matthew has been reminding us. But specifically, over the last three weeks, we looked at Matthew's narrative, uh, birth narrative as we call it, of Jesus. Um, he has, I hope that you have noticed, and hopefully we've made it clear, he's been extremely strategic and how he has shared this most uh, miraculous moment in history uh, when God takes flesh. What he has done, he's highlighted God's sovereignty. He's done this by showing us Old Testament prophecy being fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. Now, we have, before we got to the series, we've looked at Hebrews, and Hebrews has been telling us how the Old Testament pointed to the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Well, Matthew has been looking at the other end and how the Old Testament has declared and made plain that even the birth of Jesus was foretold. So it's been an enjoyable time. He's been strategic in how he has done that. And one of the things that Matthew has done, he's made a, a concerted effort to put Jesus forward as the one who's come to save people. You say, yes, I, I get that. But not only save people, but save people from all walks of life. He's made a tremendous effort to, to put Jesus forward Yes and amen, he's to save people, but he's going to save people from all walks of life. We saw this from the Gentiles that are included in genealogy. That was odd. It was different. But through that, it's being clear that Christ has come to save many. We saw it last week as the pagan wise men, as they go and they seek Jesus. Hopefully, you have been able to appreciate a bunch about the birth of Jesus. The reason we've been able to appreciate, appreciate a lot about the birth of Jesus is because there is a lot being accomplished in the birth of Jesus. How he enters the world, it declares a lot about his person, as we'll see today, about his work. So let's read together, um, or I'll read it, you can follow along. Let's read the last section of Matthew's birth narrative. We're going to look at the last piece that he unfolds for us. And we're going to do that by just starting to read verses 16 to 18 uh, in chapter 2. We're just going to start there, unpack a little bit, and then we'll get to the next section. But uh, Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 to 18 say this. Then Herod... When he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, remember the wise men had visited Jesus, they had worshipped him, and, and Herod, oh, please let me know so I can go worship him as well. Well, they uh, are better uh, in terms, are better aware through the Lord. They move and go a different direction. So he says he's been tricked. Little does he know that this is by God's design. Uh, God warned them, and they went home a different way. So when he believed that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, 
according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Now, Bethlehem at this time is a very small town. Uh, scholars, the best they can conclude is anywhere from maybe 10 to 30 or 10 to 20 um, children killed around this time frame and this age range, just in case you're wondering. Verse 17, then was fulfilled this uh, heinous, terrible act. Verse 17, Matthew says, this was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, if you have been around church or even if you just attended during the Christmas season, perhaps you've heard this story before because it is just insane. It's incredible how evil one individual can be. You have perhaps at some point in your life seen this text. Well, Herod, historically, he is known as a diabolical king who is full of paranoia. Josephus, a little light reading for you, he's an ancient historian, but he records actually many what I like to call unhinged moments of Herod where he is just off his rocker. I mean, moments where he kills his own family members because he's paranoid that they're seeking to take his power. Uh, Josephus also records that Herod actually put into place, here's what he wanted to happen. Herod put into place that at his death, when he died, he put into place with his authority that 10 other political leaders would be killed upon his death. He did this to ensure that the nation would actually mourn his loss. He was evil. Now, luckily, that plan did not happen because once he died, everyone went, <laughs> that's insane, and they didn't carry it through. But this just gives you a sense of just how evil and unhinged Herod was. I mean, suffice it to say, he trusted no one, not even his own family. Matter of fact, his paranoid attitude killed many people. This unjustified fear of his, this paranoia that he carried every day of his life, well, it intensifies at the announcement of Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews. Just knowing the little bit that you know about Herod, you would understand that announcement does not land well with him. At that announcement, this paranoia that he carried every day, well, it intensifies. Oh, no, there is no other king in my region. Oh, no, sir. So in arrogance, Herod takes matters into his own hands. He says, I'll alter history. What he doesn't understand, what his arrogance is saying, that he intends to thwart God's plan. He's been told by wise men, by all the scholars of the day, oh no, God has been planning this. They even read the scripture to him, oh no, this was intended to happen. And so arrogantly, Herod says, I'll alter history. I will thwart God's plan. Perhaps even as we read this story, if you're a good Bible scholar, you'll realize that this isn't the first time in the history of Israel the history of God's people that an evil king tries to eradicate God's people out of fear 
of them and their God. This isn't the first time that a powerful one tries to thwart God's faithfulness, tries to get in the way of his work of rescuing his people. This isn't the first moment. As we like to say in Tennessee, this isn't God's first rodeo, if you will. Many have rejected God's plan. You see, and you're probably thinking about it, right? Exodus tells a very, very similar story as this one. Remember Moses? Remember little bitty baby Moses? Floating down the river to avoid what? Being slaughtered at the evil Pharaoh's command. The people of God have grown. He's fearful they're going to do what? Take over. Take his authority. It sounds so familiar. Matthew has made a point to share Jesus' entrance into the world at many points in sharing this incredible story. He begins to point out that Jesus, in his birth, he, he kind of takes upon himself parts of Israel's history, parts of how God's people have endured up to this point. Matthew sees a bit of a connection here. He shares the story. He highlights how Jesus takes on himself many aspects of Israel's history. He does this to put Jesus forward as a representative. Let me even be more plain of this. This is his effort to put Jesus forward as the one who is actually taking upon himself the plight of us all. That's what's intended for you and I to say, wait, this sounds familiar. God's people have dealt with this type of response for so long and nothing is different for Jesus. He really is actually taking upon himself the plight of us all. You see, just like Moses, Jesus is going to be protected. Why is that? Well, you see, one cannot stop God. If there's one thing that we've noticed out of Matthew's retelling is that God simply cannot be, and I love this word, thwarted. You don't believe me? Listen to Isaiah 14, 27. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? Great question. His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? From the beginning of the world, this is who God has been and always been. Listen to another scripture. You don't believe me? Job 42, 2. I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be, here's the word, thwarted. So the word of the day for you on Christmas Eve. May Christmas Eve remind you <laughs> that God's plans cannot be, say it with me, thwarted. Who threw a W in there at the weird spot, right? <laughs> here again, here again, we are reminded that however powerful the king is, however much he tries, you simply cannot thwart God's plan. You see, Herod's paranoia, well, it forgets something. It does not account for God's sovereignty. Just because you're king and you have lots of power, there's a greater 
power. See, his paranoia can only go so far. It doesn't account for who God is. You see, he, Herod, he simply cannot stop the great king from being born. You know what else he can't stop? He cannot stop the great king taking upon himself the plight of God's people. Do you see Herod just playing right into the hands of God? Oh, thank you, Herod. You are showing that Jesus is indeed entering into the mess. Just as God's people had endured, Jesus takes upon himself many of the same aspects. Matthew takes this opportunity to not only kind of tell the story in a way that alludes and reminds us of other stories, but he's actually taken many opportunities, and he does it again to pull in more Old Testament text. Brothers and sisters, if you're visiting with us, the Bible is overwhelming. It is overwhelming of how well it works together. I mean, doesn't that alone declare a divine author? I mean, come on. Come on, of how it connects and how it tells us the unfolding of God's plan. It just is overwhelming. There's no other book that reads like it. We've watched the preacher of Hebrews, who is an incredible preacher, do it. We're seeing Matthew do it again. And so he seizes the opportunity to give us another Old Testament text. We're actually going to look at two today because in the next section we'll read as he wraps up the whole birth narrative there again is Old Testament. We're going to look at two Old Testament texts this morning, and I'll have to admit, both of them are a bit complicated. They're not as easy and clean-cut as I would like them to be, but for Matthew, who, by the way, is carried along by the Holy Spirit, seems that these texts are fitting. Though Herod is trying to thwart God's plan, he simply will not succeed. But this leveraged the opportunity with the mass insanity happening around them for, for Matthew to say something is happening here. We can get fixated on the insanity of Herod, and we should. That's lamentable. But in that act, there's more being told. So Jeremiah 31.15 is the text that Matthew points to. The insane Herod off his rocker, taking upon himself to eradicate this king, Matthew says, oh, but something is happening. Jeremiah 31, 15 sheds light on what is occurring right here. Well, this verse, as it reads, it's, it's a lament, isn't it? It laments, broadly speaking, the mistreatment of Israel. What's fascinating about the whole entire chapter of Jeremiah 31, and maybe in your mind you're already thinking about, haven't we heard Jeremiah 31? Well, we have. Hebrews unpacks it a lot too. Because that chapter is rather fascinating. 15 is the most lamentable part of the verse because on average and uh, summary of 31 is actually full of hope. Jeremiah 31 is a hope-filled chapter, but it lands in great difficulty for the people of God. So this text, though it is a lament, finds itself situated in a hopeful time for Israel. Now, if you know your Bible, you probably remember who Rachel is. But let me just kind of be clear for a second. Rachel 
in this text, in Jeremiah 31, she is not weeping her physical children. She's dead by this point, okay? But she's weeping, in essence, over her children because she was, remember, Jacob's wife. Remember that whole ordeal? And because she's Jacob's wife, several of her kids make up the 12 tribes of Israel. So they are lamenting the mistreatment of God's people, and they're close to where Rachel is believed to be born. So they make a declaration. She is weeping over the loss of her children. In essence, she is weeping over the difficulty that they are facing. She's weeping over them because, in essence, it is her children, right? She's weeping over them specifically going to exile. She's weeping specifically because they are suffering greatly at the hands of others. Now, I'm sure that children specifically suffer. I'm sure they do as well. Which for Matthew, carried along by the Holy Spirit, it kind of makes a good connection for Matthew. But there's more to the connection. You see, remember, Jesus' personal history, right? It repeats certain aspects of Israel's history in an effort to connect him. He has taken upon himself your difficulties. You see, Matthew sees in Jesus much of what God's people has endured. And what they have endured is tremendous suffering when they went to exile, were persecuted, mistreated. But in that, specifically with Jeremiah 31, at every turn of their suffering, God shows up. At every lamentable loss, at every lamentable difficulty, God showed up. And you know what he did? Remained faithful. Jeremiah 31 is where we learn of the new covenant, what we looked at in Hebrews. And here, it's almost as if Matthew is signaling, hey, this difficulty is bringing about something significant. Perhaps the people reading it, and that's always the trick, what would they have understood when they read Matthew's account? Well, by this point in the history of God's people, Jeremiah 31 rings in their ears of the hope-filled promises that God is indeed going to save them. You see, in this text, there is a realization that suffering is inevitable, that suffering will be a part of Jesus' life. He enters the world, and Herod flips his mind. Chaos ensues. He has to run from King Herod, and he'll spend the rest of his life from King Herod's lineage. Suffering surrounds him, but what is Matthew signaling? He will endure. It is actually in him where the hope of Israel lies. That's what he's saying. It's it's actually in Christ where their hope is ultimately found. But he's almost signaling, yes, there is a realization you must understand about this baby that suffering will inevitably be a part of his life, much like it's been a part of God's people's life. Suffering inevitably is a part of this world, and we all agree it is lamentable. Rachel weeps. 
It's heart-wrenching. It is painful. It is overwhelming. And until the return of this baby, until the return of this King Jesus, hardship, suffering, persecution will follow God's people. But what is Matthew saying? But that will be full of hope. We will suffer, but we will suffer not as people without hope. That's what makes this Jeremiah 31, 15 so um, tangible to them. Yeah, there was a lot of lamenting, but that lamenting gave way to God fulfilling all of his promises. He, Matthew, and through the leading of the Holy Spirit, he is saying Jesus is literally stepping into the hardships. He's stepping into the difficulty to bring comfort during it, and as we know, ultimately bring victory over it. You see, the insanity of Herod, hear this, the insanity of Herod only highlights the sanity of our sovereign God. The more insane he grows, the more glorious God looks. <laughs> the more insane his arrogance, pride, tries to take history in his own hands, how much more it highlights just how glorious our sovereign God is. You see, he, Jesus, God, mourns with us. You see, Jesus takes upon himself our plight. He's literally stepping into it. But what we know is that he wins victory. This is what Jeremiah inevitably is probably signaling for them. You see, we must understand that no insane king can take away the hope of the world. No insane king can take away the hope that we have in Christ, the Son of God. Our greatest hope, though we suffer, is in Christ alone. He literally takes upon himself our plight. Well, there's more to explore this morning. Let's, now we've looked at the insanity of Herod. Let's look at God's sane sovereignty, all right? Let's look at verses 19 to 23. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child, right? Because remember, protection from Herod's insanity, they moved to Egypt. He didn't know that, so he sends everybody to Bethlehem, right? So that's where they're at. They're in Egypt. They've been protected. Verse 20. So, so uh, after Herod died, um, the Lord appeared to Joseph, verse 20, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Here, it doesn't take us long to see again what? God's sovereign protection. We've seen it so often. But we see it again, this same type of work of God. He instructs Joseph to go to the land of Israel. There's no real specific spot. Just go to the land that God had promised his people. Go to the various places where God's people had 
uh, that God's people had been given, right? Just go to the land of Israel. As expected at this point, Joseph obeys. <laughs> Joseph, a model response. When God speaks, he says, yes and amen. Yes. Yes. At every turn of the birth narrative, Joseph simply listens and does what God says. Perhaps for some of us this morning as we approach Christmas, whether it's our 45th one or our 20th one, could not Joseph be an incredible example for us to simply listen to God? Well, maybe that's another message. But as Joseph, he simply listens, he obeys. But as he enters in, he hears that the lunatic son, that he's just as bad as dad. <laughs> and history tells us that's a right assessment of this lunatic. The apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. He indeed is insane. So Joseph hears that. He goes, wait a second. I realize we cannot go there. And so God says, yes, you're correct. And he directs him specifically to Galilee, more specifically to Nazareth. It seems that these evil kings who do nothing but create chaos, that they are just simply pawns in the hands of God. Each move, each move that Joseph, Mary, and Jesus take each action of the evil king, you know what it does? It simply just brings greater clarity to who this baby is. Not only who this baby is, but today we're getting hints of what this baby will do. Each chaotic move, we gain greater clarity of who this baby is and what he will do. You see, the king's insanity is used by our sane, sovereign God who is not out of control, it is all used by God. You may be saying, well, how do we see this? Well, once again, Matthew takes the opportunity to tie in another Old Testament thought. Matthew says, you don't believe me, look at God's plan from the beginning. So he takes this opportunity, one more move, right? They leave Egypt finally, even down to the, the, the evil killing of these children, declaration of God's God and who Christ is, now to this move, once again, is another opportunity to say that God is in control. But what does he say here? He said that this move to Nazareth actually fulfills prophecy. There's just one catch. Nazareth is never mentioned in the Old Testament. Nazareth, at this point in history, is actually relatively a new town. And it has very, very, very little significance. Now, I can hear some of your brains turning. You might be scrambling going, wait a second. Wait a minute. Isn't there a Nazarite vow taken by some in the Old Testament? Well, yes, there is. But that doesn't seem to be what is being referenced here, right? That was a vow. This is a town and it doesn't seem that there's any connection that is, seems to be intended between that. It's actually, if you, if you do research, and, and we'll grab coffee, I'll show you. It's actually well doc documented that this reference is, is rather unique. It's rather complicated to say, well, what, what in the world did Matthew mean that his readers would have been like, oh, okay, yeah. 
I do think that we're not left in the dark. I do think there are a few clues here that will help us. First, did you notice that Matthew indicates the move to Nazareth fulfills what the prophets, emphasis on the, (laughs) the prophets, plural, right? He says this move to Nazareth fulfills what the prophets, plural, what they had said. It, It seems to me that he's making a general statement about a theme of the Old Testament that you could find in all the prophets, that there's a theme apparently in the Old Testament that is actually being fulfilled in this location. The pro- this is to fill what the prophets said about this location and where Jesus is going to live for the next 30 years. There's something about what they have said that's being fulfilled in this. It it seems that he doesn't really have a specific text in mind, but maybe a theme about the Savior to come. Now, I'll agree, though, there are some who've made very specific connections. Maybe some of you have done some of your research and realized, wait a minute, isn't there a connection? Yes, there is. Some have made great efforts to see a specific uh, text, and they see the specific text, Isaiah 11, 1, Because of the Greek word, Nazareth, it actually sounds like the Hebrew word for branch. You're going, okay, whatever. Um, But some think that maybe Matthew is playing on this uh, Greek word that sounds similar to the Hebrew word for branch. Why is that important? Because Isaiah 11 alludes to a branch from David's lineage that will rise up to be the Messiah. So there's a connection that they saw that text. It was a very hopeful text for them. They knew that the coming Messiah was going. So they're saying, oh, okay, it makes sense he's from Nazareth because that's where the branch is going to rise up from. And that's a legitimate option. That may be what Matthew's doing here. And one could easily see why he would do that here. But, but the formula Matthew has been using to introduce Old Testament texts is very different here. It's not the same. He doesn't name the prophet outright. He doesn't even do a direct quote, which he has done all throughout. He just simply says, this move to Nazareth is perfect for the Savior, the King, because it's been said he would be a Nazarene. So so the question is, what does it mean to be called a Nazarene? And, And how does that somehow, someway capture what the Old Testament prophets have been saying. Well, and maybe you, astute Bible reader, maybe you're thinking of another mention of Nazareth in the Gospels. Anyone thinking of John chapter 1? Anybody thinking of Philip and Nathaniel? Remember this interaction? So, so Philip meets Jesus. He's overwhelmed by Jesus, so he runs to Nathaniel. And he tells Nathanael that they have seen Jesus, but then he says something specific. He says, oh, you know, Jesus, the promised one? And then he gets real precise. Jesus of Nazareth, right? There's a way that you would refer to them. I'm from Brighton, Tennessee. Brian of Brighton, Tennessee. You're like, well, that's a little significance. It is. But Jesus of Nazareth, that's the title he gives to kind of connect. This is who I met, the promised one, Jesus of Nazareth. He uses this to say he's from there. Do you remember Nathaniel's response? This is so funny. Remember his response? What does he say? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? 
which is what you would say about Brighton, Tennessee, but nonetheless. Nathaniel's, Jesus of Nazareth, he's from there? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, this is, this is more localized, right? This is more the, the, the feel of the town. So to say someone is a Nazarene, perhaps Nathaniel has given us a little bit of insight. To me, and what seems to be really clear, he captures the general sentiment about Nazareth. What, what, is, uh, what is it about Nazareth? Well, it was despised. It was looked down upon. It was certainly of little significance, right? So to be called a Nazarene is not a warm and fuzzy title. So you're saying, but, but Pastor, what, what does Matthew see here? Well, here's how one commentator put it. It's so good. I just want to read it to you. I think it's so helpful. The words, he shall be called a Nazarene, represents the prophetic expectation that the Messiah, and that Matthew's been putting the, the Messiah, making that plain, that the Messiah would appear from nowhere and would, as a result, meet with incomprehension and rejection. Of course, the prophets could not speak specifically of Nazareth, which did not even exist when they wrote. But the connotations of the derogatory term, Nazarene, as applied in the first century to the messianic pretender Jesus, it captured just what some of the prophets had predicted, a Messiah who came from the wrong place, who did not conform to the expectations of Jewish tradition, and who, as a result, would not be accepted by his people. It seems to be a fitting term for our Savior, and seems to be one that we might could relate to <laughs> very well. You see, what a Nazarene means is deeply connected to how the Old Testament prophet spoke of Jesus as what? The suffering servant despised, rejected, not even pleasant to look at. Are you hearing that text? Well, let me just read it to you. Isaiah 53, 1-3. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry land. This is talking about Jesus. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. This is speaking of our Savior. You're like, don't you dare say that about him. But this is what's being declared. Verse 3 of, of Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men. Sounds like a Nazarene to me. A man of sorrows. Acquainted with grief. Even his entrance into the world. Acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteem him not. This is our Savior. Willingly taking upon himself our hurts, pains, and plight. Coming from nowhere of little majesty fully acquainted with grief, despised and rejected, not esteemed 
Oh, doesn't he feel relatable? Isn't it amazing that when the God-man takes flesh, he does it in this way? Say what you will about Jesus, but there is no one in the history of the world who can relate so deeply to all of us. This morning, I think it's wise for us to reflect. These are two real unique ways to just talk about the birth of Jesus. But Matthew has been so strategic. This morning, I think what we should reflect on is Jesus is the suffering servant. That seems to be what's being so clearly presented. He's the suffering servant. He's the one that Scripture has talked about. And because he is a suffering servant, what is he able to do? Take upon himself our hurts. And because he does that, he does that work, knowing who his person is, the Son of God, King of the Jews, he's also able to bring hope. This is an interesting way to tell the birth of Jesus. He will suffer. And he willingly does that because he wants to take upon himself all the hurts and pains and sins effects so that in that work he can bring our greatest hope. This Christmas, we should be mindful of the hope we have in Christ. You know why we're mindful of the hope we have in Christ? It's because he suffered. It's an odd connection, isn't it? But yet it's one that Matthew says, oh no, at the birth narrative, let us celebrate. Let us be aware. Matthew takes this moment in his birth narrative to cast a picture of Jesus as our greatest hope. Why is he our greatest hope? Because he's a suffering servant. Why is he our greatest hope? Because he's the one who would take upon himself what you and I cannot endure. You see, Herod killing children is lamentable. That should pain us. It is evil. But the baby who was saved, well, he brings us great hope. Though he will be despised, he's being despised even at his birth, Though he will be rejected, he's being rejected even at his birth. But Matthew has made it plain, it doesn't matter because he's the Messiah. He's the one who comes from the lineage of David who will reign forever. God will protect, look after, and truly bring all of his promises to be fulfilled. You see, Jesus is not like others. He comes from Nazareth. You see, his only claim, it's not where he's from. His only claim, it's, it's not from fame. His, his claim to the throne and, hey, you should worship me, it's not his fortunes. It's not his fame. But you know what it is? He is the promised king. (laughs) That makes him well-suited to be the one that we would find all of our hope in. He is the suffering servant that the Old Testament prophets told us about. This morning, you need to know you're not alone in your suffering. 
Christmas reminds us of that. Christ comes to bring great hope. But we all agree that when he comes, it is surrounded by difficulty. He's being despised. He's just a baby. He's being rejected. He knows your plight well. No matter how you feel this morning, Christ has felt it before. And we might could say, in greater degree. But see, his suffering brings our hope. His suffering brings our peace. So you and I this Christmas, let us trust him all the more. And as we trust him, let our joy abound well beyond this Christmas season. If you're with us this morning, drug here by a family member, stumbled upon us because it's the Christmas season, praise the Lord you're here. God's hands and God works in miraculous and wonderful ways. Can you hear this morning that this Christmas season puts before us the Jesus who suffers and grants us hope? Grab someone if you have more questions. I would love to chat further. Let's pray. Father God, this morning, I pray and hope that your grace and mercy is evident. I pray and hope as we see Christ coming into the world, as we explore specifically how Matthew tells us that he enters the world, that it generates a great hope in us. Father, it gives us greater realizations of what it means to follow you. It gives us greater joy in knowing that our Savior has went before us, prepared the way, taken upon himself what we could not endure. This Christmas Eve, might we rejoice today. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.